Welcome to Pints with Chesterton, a podcast where typically two millennial women read and discuss the wonderful and whimsical works of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. I am Marie Bates, and today I'd like to share with you something a little different. This is the audio from our presentation at the Chesterton Conference this summer in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It was a total joy to attend this amazing conference with Grace and with my husband, David, on the 100th anniversary of Chesterton's conversion to the Catholic faith, and it was such an honor to speak on a panel with two of my favorite people. Please enjoy our presentation, and may you all enjoy lives of wit and whimsy. Cheers! to another episode of Uncommon Sense, the official podcast of the Society of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. I'm Gretelyn Darkey, and this is my co-host, Albert Sines. Wait, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not talking. Whoops. <laughs> right. No, in all seriousness, this is not the podcast, the official podcast of the Society of Gilbert Keith Chesterton, um, but it is about podcasts. Uh, if you've been tuning in to Uncommon Sense, you know that Albert and I often say that Chesterton is better with friends. Um, I would like to introduce some friends now. I got to meet David, Marie, and Grace when they came to the conference, and I have to say, more friendly people you could not hope to meet. Um, I am here to introduce them. They are podcast hosts themselves. Um, first of all, we have Marie Bates in the middle here. Uh, she is... Sorry. She's not juggling paper and a phone like me. Um, <laughs> she's a former uh, assistant radio producer at Catholic Answers, and now she has the amazing honor and privilege of being a stay-at-home mom to a very beautiful child who I've met several times. And she is now the co-founder and co-host of Pints with Chesterton, which she co-hosts with Grace Krause. Uh, Grace is a campus minister and RCIA director at the Catholic Parish and Student Center on the campus of LSU. She taught theology and church history for eight years, and it, um, has been the co-host of other podcasts before, but now she's the co-host, as I said, of Pints with Chesterton, which, if you don't know, is a delightful podcast where these two lovely ladies talk about Chesterton together as just as two people trying to enjoy and experience Chesterton. Um, we have broadcast uh, their podcast on Uncommon Sense, um, we most recently rebroadcast their um, unpacking of orthodoxy, and I have to say uh, the fan mail was was shining. Um, and thank you so much for giving us that content. Um, they and Marie also brought her husband along. <laughs> um, David Bates is a co-host for Pints with Jack, which is the um, podcast for all things C.S. Lewis. Um, so he's you know we're letting him in, but. Um, <laughs> no, so um, thank you to, to all three of these wonderful people for, um, for bringing good, good authors, Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, to more people through this new medium that we have podcasting. Um, and I'm just going to let them take it away. Thank you. It is so nice to be with you all today. Um, with my husband who tagged along, you get one, you get both. Uh, and with Grace, um, who's usually in Louisiana, so we're getting to be together after many 
a year apart. We haven't seen each other in a long time in person, so it's very good. Uh, some months ago when Grace and I were doing our research for The Man Who Was Thursday, we were going to discuss it on the podcast, I was reading articles online and I found an article in The New Yorker from 2008 about GKC and it was upon the anniversary of The Man Who Was Thursday. I was very interested. Uh, the title of the article is called The Back of the World, The Troubling Genius of GKC. <laughs> I was troubled by this title, uh, but I continued reading, uh, and you should read it too. It's, a, it's an interesting article. I can say honestly that this author made an attempt to be unbiased as he unpacked Chesterton, um, and he had read quite a bit of Chesterton. He praises his literary and writing abilities, and I would agree with him there. Um, he had a lot of complaints about Chesterton, <laughs> um, many of which you would know, uh, and he said that his Catholic fans didn't see any of his flaws. I would maybe not call all of his complaints flaws, but one particular flaw that I would like to focus on uh, was Chesterton's Catholicism. <laughs> this, this journalist wanted to love Chesterton. He did love him. He was really attracted to his stories but he only wanted part of him. He wanted to love his wit, but he didn't want his religiosity. He wanted his fun, but he didn't want the faith. And he ultimately wanted to call that faith, which I have observed to be the greatest romance of Chesterton's life, um, just a mere detail in his life, and something that's sort of a frustrating reality of reading him. Uh, as an otherwise reasonable and witty writer. Fun, funnily enough, a pre-conversion Lewis said on something almost identical. He said that he thought Chesterton was the most sensible man alive apart from his Christianity. Yes. Well, sorry, Jack. <laughs> um, we always like to say Christianity is the reason why Chesterton was a man fully alive with two legs. So... Um, I'm here today to suggest that there's no division in G.K. Chesterton's writing. What he, what the truth that permeates both his fiction and his nonfiction are uh, telling us the same story, after all. His stories are the manifestation of the creed that he came to believe. I think stories really speak to all three of us. And after having been at the conference this weekend and talking to people, hearing some of the talks, I can see that stories are important to all of us. Um, after all, we are a faith of stories. So, um, But since coming to find Chesterton's work in our own lives, um, we've all come to know God more deeply. And we have laughed so much more. Uh, but to be fair, you can also laugh if you like C.S. Lewis. <laughs> For example, when, when someone asked C.S. Lewis what he kept in his wardrobe, do you know what he said? Narnia business. <laughs> and for those of you who don't understand the English accent, Narnia, Narnia business. <laughs> By the way, the jokes will be this bad when it comes to my section, so just prepare yourself. <laughs> um, it's quite a gift to be able to tell the truth in nonfiction in a way that people want to read. Not everybody wants to pick up nonfiction. And Chesterton does this in orthodoxy. 
Certainly. But I think that it's masterful when he does this in a story, um, and many more people pick up stories. Um, I would submit, submit that Chesterton's fiction and nonfiction have parallel ideas. Certain books seem to just pair really well together, um, like a fine wine and cheese, <laughs> which we've heard a lot about this weekend. Uh, Together, they act as wonderfully different expressions of Chesterton's fundamental philosophy, uh, just with an emphasis on the fun. In the rest of my time, I'd like to look at one particular pairing, uh, namely orthodoxy and man alive, um, a good port wine and a fine Stilton, which David says he will take me to try in England one of these days. Uh, and then David will be talking about a similar phenomenon that he sees in C.S. Lewis, and Grace is going to be talking about um, The Man Who Was Thursday and the Book of Job, actually. And it always comes back to Jesus Christ, so I love that we're finishing there with scripture. Um, since this is the Chesterton Conference, I assume that you've all read Orthodoxy and Man Alive, but if you haven't, that's okay, because I will give you the information you need to... Uh, to understand what I'm saying. Um, Orthodoxy was written in 1908, and then four years later um, came Man Alive. And this was well before Chesterton's official conversion, but we've been hearing the whole weekend, and we all know that he was converted in heart long before he actually made it to the church to have the sacraments. And he already embraced the creed that he talks about in Orthodoxy, um, and so it was able to influence him when he wrote Man Alive just four years later. In Orthodoxy, Gilbert tells of his journey to faith. Uh, I would suggest that Man Alive is no less his story uh, and no less an expression of his philosophy of life, just manifested in the fictional character of Innocent Smith. Um, so let me briefly tell you about Man Alive. Uh, imagine a boarding house in London with a bunch of 20-somethings kind of wasting their lives away, not doing anything particularly meaningful. And Innocent Smith blows in over the wall of the garden, chasing an unruly hat that's in the wind, and climbs a tree to get his hat back. And he sweeps into this house, and he just brings all of this unexplainable joy and stirs up the household of young people. Um, he realizes one of his friends from school, Arthur, is staying in the boarding house, and he decides to stay as well. He's unpacking his bags at the top of the house and getting all of the men to drink wine on the roof, which just sounds like a good time. And uh, as the story goes on, he quickly falls in love with one of the ladies in the house, Mary Gray, proposes to her, tries to whisk her away to marry her, and thereby is put on trial, house trial, and um, is analyzed because he's crazy <laughs> for proposing to a woman after one day. So um, how fun, right? This is one of Grace's, uh, Grace and I's favorite books, and we did it as one of our first books on the podcast. Um, so <laughs> the book ends with all of the men being transformed by Innocent Smith and manning up and wanting to marry the ladies that they've so clearly been in love with. And um, there's this renewal, this joyful renewal of family and life at the end of this story. Um, but 
I want to return to the House trial and I want to talk about a couple of the charges that are brought against innocent because we see in these charges some things about Chesterton in his own life. Uh, he's accused of four things. They all sound pretty bad. Um, murder, burglary, desertion, and polygamy. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> heavy, heavy charges. Uh, there's evidence supporting all of them. However, new evidence always seems to come forward that exonerates him. So he's charged with the attempted murder of a professor at his university. Um, he debates with this professor about nihilism and God, and he's witnessed to uh, he's witnessed holding a pistol, a loaded pistol, at his professor, and. Um, we find out later, though, that the professor didn't press charges because he's so grateful to Smith for shaking him from his rotten philosophy. Um, later, he's charged with breaking and entering. Two curates are invited on a break-in adventure. <laughs> One makes it to the break-in, and it has all these thoughts of Santa Claus and how wrong it is to break in. Uh, the man discovers, though, that Innocent Smith is indeed breaking into his own home. And they sit down to a drink in his library. The third charge is desertion. And indeed, Innocent does take this journey around the world. And this is one of the most interesting parts of Man Alive because along the way he talks to all of these philosophers and he still finds his creed to be true. He holds it up um, to these other philosophies, and he still finds his creed to be true. But his wife knew about the trip, and he, she's not worried about it. When he returns, queerly, suddenly, she sits him down to tea in the garden. Uh, all right, our last charge, polygamy, is that uh, maybe darkest charge, and all the women are hushed out of the room as this charge is given because it's just awful. Um, but we find out that Smith and his wife play a game, one where she allows him to meet her in all of these new situations and under pseudonyms, just in order to pursue her, propose to her, and marry her all over again, every time. It's so romantic. <laughs> <laughs> every time I'm like, well, no. Chesterton's better than you. <laughs> no. I mean, that is pretty romantic, though. Um, this is why Chesterton calls marriage a duel to the death. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So how does this connect to orthodoxy and to Chesterton's own life? Uh, when Chesterton was young, he did go to university, and he encountered spiritualism and nihilism. Um, and... Cup this, coupled with personal suffering in his life, um, caused quite a dark time in his life and caused him nearly to despair. Um, we're told when in Innocent Smith is at university that a starless nihilism was then the philosophy of the schools. Smith acts with seeming violence towards his professor, but it's only an attempt to wake him up, wanting him to confront the claims of his philosophy. Um, and in Chesterton's own life, we see him debate many people who he firmly disagrees with, um, trying to wake them up to their incorrect philosophies. Like Smith, Chesterton struggles with the idea of this black creed, 
even to the point of considering suicide. In orthodoxy, though, he tells us of how he found a better creed. Um, throughout the story, Innocent Smith always seeks to show the greatest gratitude for all of the things in his life. Uh, we're given this cartoonish image of Smith traipsing on foot around the world, chatting philosophy with Chinese and Californians, and wow. And while it's true, I'm from California, I can say that. Uh, and while it's true that Smith is on a journey to seek truth, he's also on a journey with the desire to love his family better and to come back with a true appreciation for them. He talks about hearing his wife and children in the other room and them feeling so wonderful and so beautiful, but so distant from him. And he wants to go on this journey just to find them again and just to love them again. And that makes me want to cry because it's so beautiful. Uh, in Gilbert's own life, which we've heard a little bit about this weekend, but I'm going to say it again. Um, he adored Francis, his wife. And I especially loved Nancy Brown's book on this. Grace did too, um, on Francis. And their home was a sanctuary for children, even though they didn't have any children. Gratitude played a huge role in their life. Um, and it saved Chesterton. He says that gratitude is the antidote for the despair that he felt. Um, and he showed the same gratitude to the friends that were in his life, even the ones that disagreed with him completely. He had this utter charity and gratitude for them. And we just see so many examples over his lifetime of um, these wonderful relationships that he had with people, no matter what their ideas were. Uh, in Orthodoxy, GKC says that the test of all happiness is gratitude, and I felt grateful, though I hardly knew to whom. Children are grateful when Santa Claus puts in their stockings gifts of toys or sweets. Could I not be grateful to Santa Claus when he put in my stockings the gift of two miraculous legs? Even in this Orthodoxy quotation, which I just read, we find two images from Man Alive, and you can kind of see how his work pairs together. We see Santa Claus mentioned in the so-called burglary and even two legs. As I finished that New Yorker article, it became clear to me that the author did not really appreciate Chesterton's swordplay and paradox and wit and whimsy. Uh, he didn't find it to be charming. He, the, the author, said that anyone should be able to see that the Catholic Church is just a normal bureaucratic human institution. He wanted Catholicism to be excised from Chesterton's work. If I believed that the church was just a human institution, like the post office, which is what this guy believes, I would be utterly concerned about Chesterton and his zeal for Catholicism. However, the truth is that Chesterton tried to found a heresy of his own, and in so doing, he found orthodoxy and the church founded by Jesus Christ. This completely transformed his life and made him fully a man alive. How can I possibly follow my wife? <laughs> But 
I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, at least <laughs> at least you have a cool English accent. So. This is true. It might take you a little while to tune in, but just know that this is how words are meant to sound. And before COVID, I would do speaking engagements, and I would notice a certain point in the talk when I'd notice people's eyes would just glaze over. They weren't listening to me anymore. They were just letting the beautiful sounds wash over them. But I would like to continue this theme that Maria started about, communicating truth through narrative. And I'd like to do that by first of all explaining how Chesterton influenced my guy, C.S. Lewis, and then unpack a little bit about how Lewis then took up Chesterton's mantle of evangelizing and communicating truth through story to the next generation. And I'm, I think I'm pretty safe in guessing that most people here have had some exposure to C.S. Lewis, but since we're talking about conversion this weekend, uh, it seems appropriate that I would just recap a little bit this man's life, his life story, his conversion, and the part that G.K. Chesterton had to play in that story. So C.S. Lewis, he was born in 1898 in Belfast. But from a very early age, he insisted on being called Jack. And that is why my podcast is called Pints with Jack. And Lewis, he was raised in a church violent household. But by the time he was a teenager, he became disillusioned with Christianity and declared himself an atheist. And if that wasn't bad enough, then on his 19th birthday, he found himself in the trenches, in the front line in the trenches in France in the First World War. He survives, and then he goes to Oxford to study. And he does greats, which is philosophy and ancient history. He does moderations, which is Greek and Latin literature, and English literature. So super smart guy. And he eventually becomes a teacher himself, first at Oxford, and then later in his life, he takes a chair at Cambridge. As an adult, moving very quickly forward, um, he returns both to theism, so he first of all believes in God again, and then ultimately Christianity. He's part of this amazing literary discussion group and literary writers group called The Inklings, who would meet every Tuesday morning at the pub called The Eagle and Child, which is why our podcast is called Pints with Jack. And we also uh, publish our episodes on Tuesday mornings. He died at the age of 64, and he died as a very well-known speaker and author. He had written books on every topic imaginable, uh, poetry, biography, science fiction, literary criticism, fairy tale. I often like to say he was the jack of all genres. I told you the jokes weren't going to get any better. <laughs> uh, so one of the key figures who helped Lewis in that conversion, because I skipped over it very quickly, was G.K. Chesterton. And he mentions G.K.C. several times in his spiritual autobiography, which is called Surprised by Joy. Hence the title of this talk, Surprised by Chesterton. And he was first introduced to him during the First World War. Lewis contracted trench fever, which is very nasty. And while he was recuperating in hospital, uh, while his roommate was, as Lewis describes it, conducting a furious love affair with one of the night nurses, while his roommate was doing that, he was sitting down to a nice volume of Chesterton's essays. It's, it, yeah. <laughs> that just needs no comment. But here's what he said. 
I had never heard of Chesterton, and I had no idea of what he stood for. Nor can I quite understand why he made such an immediate conquest of me. Liking an author may be as involuntary and improbable as falling in love. <laughs> his humor was the kind that I like best. Moreover, strange as it seemed, I liked him for his goodness. In reading Chesterton, as in reading George MacDonald, I did not know what I was letting myself in for. A young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. There are traps everywhere. And as I mentioned earlier, Chesterton said, uh, Lewis said that Chesterton had more sense than all the moderns put together, except, of course, for his Christianity. But one work which really affected Lewis was The Everlasting Man. In fact, in 1962, the Christian Century interviewed Lewis, and they asked him what were his top 10 books which really shaped his vocational attitude and philosophy. And The Everlasting Man was number two. And in Surprised by Joy, he explains why. For the first time, I saw the whole Christian outline of history laid out for me in a form which seemed to make sense. So Cheston told the story of Christianity, and this helped a very skeptical Lewis realize that the faith might be a little bit more believable than he had previously imagined. However, I think Lewis owes another debt to Gilbert, namely inspiration. Because, as I've said, I'm chiefly a Lewis guy, but I've been reading more Chesterton in recent years. And as I read more Chesterton and listen, obviously, to my wife's podcast, I start to see that Lewis drew many of his ideas from GKC. In fact, when I had Dale Alquist on our show, he, I'm assuming jokingly, but either way, cheekily, said that really once you've found Chesterton, because Lewis borrowed so heavily from him, you don't really need to read Lewis anymore because you just get all of it from Chesterton. Mr. Alquist and I will be having a duel later in the parking lot <laughs> if he's man enough to show. But Dale certainly is right that Chesterton influenced Lewis. You only have to just pick up any of his books to see it. And just to pick one example at random, Lewis is well known for his trilemma, that Christ either has to be a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. It's right out of The Everlasting Man. I believe that you had uh, Alan C. Duncan, who we also interviewed. He was at this conference last year, and he's got a wonderful audiobook that goes through all of the all of the parallels, all the similar themes between these two great men. But I would like to say that there's one more, one more final debt that Lewis owes to Chesterton, and this debt relates to what Marie spoke about earlier, this idea of communicating story, communicating truth through story. And Marie said that a lot of Chesterton's books pair very well together, and that's no less true for Lewis. Uh, you, it's very often that you'll find one book that is just didactic teaching, it's apologetics, it's philosophy, and then another book of fiction where it's exploring the same idea. In Lewis's third science fiction book, That Hideous Strength, he even says explicitly in the preface that in this book he's trying to communicate the same idea that he was communicating in a series of lectures which he gave, which were gathered together into the abolition of man. And it's widely recognized that Till We Have Faces, which my co-host Andrew says is his best book. He's wrong, but that's, that's another matter. 
he says uh, that Till We Have Faces is really an incarnation of the ideas expressed in The Four Loves, which was the book which we read through this season. And for Lewis, this idea of communicating and evangelizing through story, it, it seems to have begun with his first science fiction book, which was called Out of the Silent Planet. In a letter which he wrote to a friend of his who was an Anglican nun, he noted that out of about 60 reviews, only two reviewers seemed to have any idea what Lewis was up to, that he was communicating theology and philosophy. And this is what he wrote to Sister Penelope. But if only there was someone with a richer talent and more leisure, I believe this great ignorance might be a help to the evangelization of England. Any amount of theology can now be smuggled into people's minds under the cover of romance without their knowing it. And by romance, he's talking about fictional stories. But why communicate through stories, though? I think the chief reason is that stories engage our imagination. And in his wonderfully named essay, Blusfels and Flallenspheres, Jack says, for me, reason is the natural organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning. Now, stories transport us into other worlds and allow us to see through different eyes. And they can communicate truth to us and engage our reason, but they can also engage our imagination and make the truth that's communicated meaningful to us. And that is exactly what Lewis does in Narnia. But for that, there was another important figure in Lewis's conversion, and he was mentioned in an earlier quotation, and that's George MacDonald. Lewis read his fairy tale called Fantasties, and he said that when he read that book, it baptized his imagination. But the rest of him took a little bit longer. And what MacDonald did for Jack's imagination, I'm sure Narnia has done for many of ours. In Narnia, through the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, we've encountered truth, but communicated winsomely and in a charming manner. And in Lewis's essay, sometimes fairy stories say best what's to be said. He explains, I wrote fairy tales because the fairy tale seemed the ideal form for the stuff I had to say. I thought I saw how stories of this kind could steal past a certain inhibition, which had paralyzed my own religion in childhood. Why did one find it so hard to feel as one was told to feel about God or the sufferings of Christ? I thought the chief reason was what one was told one ought to. An obligation can freeze feelings, and reverence itself did harm. But supposing, supposing that by casting all these things into an imaginary world, stripping them of their stained glass and Sunday school associations, one could make them for the first time appear in their real potency. Could one not steal past those watchful dragons? And that's what happens in Narnia. We experience Christ's sacrifice anew in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We feel the longing for something transcendent in The Horse and His Boy. And, and we feel the effects of, of sin and the harboring of dragonish thoughts in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So Lewis did exactly what he said needed to be done, smuggling theology into fiction. But I did want to just wrap up my time here by addressing 
one possible fear or suspicion people might have about this idea of communicating truth through story. Because what if the means undermines the message? What if the story actually distracts from the thing that you're trying to communicate? And you might wonder, how might C.S. Lewis respond to that question? The good thing is, is he did. Lewis wrote many letters. He figured that if somebody took their time out of their life to send him a letter, they deserved a response. And so he spent two hours a day, pretty much every day, responding to fan mail. And his letters are collected into three massive volumes. But there's a smaller volume. It's called Letters to Children. And it is adorable. And I would just like to wrap up my time by reading a response that Lewis wrote to a mother who was writing on behalf of her son because he was afraid that he might love Aslan more than he loves Jesus. This is Jack's response. Lawrence can't really love Aslan more than Jesus, even if he feels that is what he is doing. For the things that he loves Aslan for doing or saying are simply the things that Jesus did and said. So that when Lawrence thinks he is loving Aslan, he is really loving Jesus and perhaps loving him more than he ever did before. Thank you. I take it back. You're better than G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> All right. Um, I want to wrap up our little panel um, with my portion to talk a little bit more about this concept of story, but I want to start with the story uh, with Scripture. So there's this one passage in the Gospels that I've been coming back to a lot, um, and it's when Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth in order to preach in the synagogue. And at first, everyone is so blown away by what he's saying and just like their encounter with him um, that they start to, it seems like they start to believe um, who he is. But really, really quickly, um, they start asking questions like, wait a minute wait a minute, we know this guy, right? Like, he is from our hometown, we grew up with him, we know his parents, like, we know him. He's, he can't be anything more than what we are. So what they basically do is they, they minimize um, the person of Jesus. They don't allow themselves to wonder at the person that he is um, because they think that they've got him completely figured out. And I think this is kind of what happened to Lewis in his life, um, with Jesus, with the Gospels, is thinking like, and, and Chesterton talks about this, like being too familiar with the people in front of us, being too familiar with the Christian faith, um, that we just kind of like tie it up in a box with a bow and say like, I got that. I got it figured out. I understand you. I understand me. I understand the world. I understand God. And I can just shove it aside now. Um, so this is a concept that I kind of want to talk about um, that I think Chesterton really kind of gets into, um, especially with his work, The Man Who Was Thursday. Um, so I'm going to talk about that in a bit. Um, but yeah, I think that Chesterton and Lewis really both understood this tendency we have as human beings to sort of grasp at um, a full understanding of what we're seeing. So whether it's another person, whether it's God, whether it's, it's the universe, there's a lot of truth that we can learn that God reveals to us. And both of them were such champions of the truth. Um, but at the same time, 
they both had this humility um, to recognize that even though I have discovered a lot of truth and it's very beautiful and God has revealed a lot to us, um, that at the end of the day, I'm not God and I don't know everything. I don't have everything figured out and I can't completely even figure myself out. Um, and so I think that's really important. Um, stories, one of the reasons I think that stories are so powerful is I think that they're incarnational. Um, they take the truth and they put flesh to the dogmas. Um, and they make us see in a way that sometimes we can't. And that's why I think the whole concept of like slipping past the watchful dragons works. Um, because we're sort of taken off guard. Um, we see the truth live and in color. Um, and it's, it's powerful because of that. Um, all right. So I know that Chesterton um, in orthodoxy argues himself that pure logic um, isn't really the fullness of reason. That it's very easy for us to kind of like spin ourselves around in these little logic circles that sound very nice and tight and clean and that we've got all these answers to these questions. Um, but it's very easy for us to actually get very far afield from the truth, from the fullness of truth by doing that. Um, and so the fullness of truth lies beyond our own egos. Um, and we have to be able to see and wonder at the world around us, the people in front of us, God, the universe, um, and even ourselves. And so um, I think the point that Chesterton is trying to make is that reality is bigger than just logic, but it doesn't discount logic, um, that logic is a part of the faith, but it's not the full picture. Um, there's something deeper, there's something more mysterious, there's this encounter that must happen, an encounter with a person or persons, namely the persons of God. Um, and that's something that's far beyond us. So the humility that I think Chesterton has comes from this idea that um, I, I really can't completely figure out everything. Um, but if I humble myself before God and before other people and for the, before the universe, even before myself, um, that I can actually learn far more. So it's this paradoxical truth that um, kind of admitting that I don't know a lot opens me up to actually discover and see and know more. So um, just to reiterate, Chesterton and Lewis, both um, amazing intellects who were helped to faith by reasonable arguments. Um, but I think that neither of them ultimately were converted by argument. I think both of them were converted by an encounter with a person, namely the person of Jesus Christ. Um, so the story of Jesus, him as a person, um, is the one that's actually converting their hearts, that's actually helping them to see the fullness of truth, which all of the arguments sort of fit into. Um, so Chesterton, uh, I think Marie mentioned this before, but Chesterton experienced this great period of darkness during his time at the Slade School of Art. Um, and I read this in, or I read parts of it in Macy Ward's biography, um, and it just really hit me. It was sort of this vivid image of being in this place where you're, you're running in these little logic circles and you're surrounding yourself with people who are very cynical, they're nihilistic. Um, there's a lot of academic pride um, that is coming through people thinking like, oh, I, I've got it all figured out. I understand things, you know. Um, and he really got to a dark place. Um, that's where he is dabbling even in some spiritualism. 
Um, he doesn't, he's questioning everything that he's learned up until this point in his life. Um, and he basically reaches this breaking point. And then he describes having this experience of grace that really pierces through the darkness. And I believe that that was his encounter with God. Um, not that he hadn't had encounters with God before that, but th this one was really something that shook him awake, that he was able to kind of see that the reality around him was not this darkness that he had been experiencing and that all of his people that he was hanging around were talking about and experiencing too. Um, but that the, the truth of reality was really light, like at the bottom of everything, at the base of all reality is really goodness and not evil. And so he was seeing his friends or these people that he knew that were really getting involved in some deep evil. Um, but he recognized that it was all lies in this like flashing moment. I'm going to cry because I've experienced this. <laughs> but um, yeah, he just, he realized, he knew, he was like, God is good. And God is the one who is real. And everything else is less than real. Um, that's not good. So really, in a nutshell, Chesterton encountered God. Um, he saw. And he was never the same. And after that, he is writing all of these beautiful things. He's joyful. He's jolly. He's silly. He's you know, all these wonderful things that we love about Chesterton. And I think a lot of people think like, oh, his wit, his whimsy, his frivolity um, co maybe comes from some kind of like naive optimism. But Chesterton himself talks about how he doesn't like the concept of optimism or pessimism, right? Um, and so it's really not coming from that. It's coming from something much deeper. It's coming from this real encounter with, with God, this encounter with joy, this encounter with light. Um, and so all of that, is, yeah, just so much deeper than on the surface. And I think that was why Lewis, when he was reading Chesterton uh, in the trenches or in the hospital, um, that he recognized something in Chesterton's writing that was genuine and it was deep and it wasn't a cheap, it wasn't a cheap joy. It was something that came from this, this real encounter with darkness um, and then being able to see the anecdote, which is light, God. Okay, so I want to talk about The Man Who Was Thursday, and I'm a little bit nervous to talk about it because it is such a famously confusing book, um, and I am not a scholar, and that's one of the things that Marie and I keep talking about on our podcast. We're like, look, we're just normal people reading these books, trying to understand them. Um, I had sort of a revelation uh, when I reread this book this summer, and it was the fifth time I read it <laughs> because I was trying to understand it. Um, and I still don't know if it's right. So if Dale or somebody else who's more of a scholar than me wants to correct me, please do. But um, I think that Man Alive, which Marie was talking about. Please is, do not. Do not correct us on the stage. <laughs> not on the stage. Later. 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 You can talk to me. And if uh, it's Marie, never. Doesn't respond well to criticism. Oh. <laughs> not true. <laughs> So Marie talked about Man Alive and how Man Alive is sort of this uh, fictionalized um, hyperbolic story of Chesterton's own life and conversion. Um, I think that's true. I think The Man Who Is Thursday is also, but I think instead of being sort of like the exaggerated story of his conversion, I think it's more capturing the experience of his conversion, something that goes much deeper, that's much more mysterious, like the kind of feelings and thoughts and emotions and things that are happening in him 
as he is going through this conversion process. Um, so the man who was there saying, in case you don't know, um, I'm not going to talk a ton about it because it is sort of a mystery. I don't want to give anything away. Um, but it takes you on a wild ride. It is funny, characteristically, of Chesterton. I laughed out loud many times reading it. Um, but the whole time, you are so confused. Um, you think maybe that one person is the good guy and another person is the bad guy. And then it keeps flip-flopping on you throughout the book. And you're like, what is even happening? Um, so the first time that I read Thursday... I listened to I listened to the audiobook and I finished it wide-eyed and I was like I loved that and I have no idea what it was about <laughs> none at all like I was waiting the whole time for all of these questions that I had to be answered and I got to the end and I was like no idea like none what what is he trying to say I don't know but I know that it's profound I know that it's profound. And so I'm just like, okay, I'm going to figure this out. But I shelved it for a while. Over the years, it was probably about five years ago that I read it for the first time. And over the years, I would read it again and again and again. And I was like, oh, it's like having something on the tip of your tongue. It was like the meaning on the tip of my mind. And I was like, there's something here. And I just don't know what it is. So um, over time, I decided to start reading uh, just a couple little essays and things that people had written about it. And one of the things that someone suggested was that there was some sort of connection between The Man Who Is Thursday and the Book of Job. And I was blown away by this um, because God has been, he's, God is just so funny. Um, he has been having me read and try to understand or try to grapple with the book of Job for the last year and a half of my life. And this was something that was completely separate from my reading of Chesterton. It had nothing to do with Chesterton. I was reading Job totally on my own. Um, and so trying to grapple with that story, um, it was so funny how the two just kind of came together. So when I first read Job, like most people, um, I was asking the same question that Job was asking. What is the meaning of suffering? Um, huge question, mysterious question. Um, but more specifically than what is the meaning of suffering, what is the meaning of my suffering? Um, the things that I have to experience. Um, and so the first time I read it, I got to the end. And of course, God finally shows up and starts to talk to Job. And I found God's answer first confusing, um, and then at the end, just like unsatisfying, because I thought like, he, he didn't tell him anything. Like he didn't tell him the answer to his question. You know, what is the meaning of my suffering? Why did you allow me to suffer? Why did you make me suffer? Um, and so, yeah, I was just confused by that. But I was more confused to see that Job, at the end of the story, is somehow satisfied. And I was like, I'm not satisfied. Why is Job satisfied with this answer? He's the one that's suffering, you know? Um, and so, and, and even more than that, Job is satisfied with God's answer before God restores his fortunes. Because at the end of the book, he does restore his fortunes because of his righteousness and his faithfulness. But, um, but before he does that, Job is satisfied with God's answer. Job is a righteous man. He was exemplary. He tried to follow God's law as best he knew it. He was trying to serve the poor, all these different things. Um, and I feel like while I don't think of myself as super righteous, um, I do have the experience of being a cradle Catholic who has never been outside the church, you know, who has always gone to church on Sunday with my family and has 
gone to school for theology and worked for the church my whole adult life so far. Um, so it's when, when suffering comes um, and, and it seems like you're doing all the right things, um, it's very confusing, you know? And so I was just like, gosh, what is going on? I recently went through um, a period of time that kind of shook me uh, to the core. It really made me question um, a lot of the things that I had believed my entire life and studied and really given my life to. Um, and I read Job again many times during this period, and I started to understand it more. Um, and I realized that in the midst of deep suffering, Job is not satisfied by a nice, neat little answer to a question, but instead he's satisfied in some mysterious way by encountering the person of God. So similar to Chesterton, um, and I would argue similar to a lot of the characters in The Man Who Is Thursday, um, they don't get clear answers to their questions. So a lot of the questions that are coming up in that book, um, questions about suffering, questions about the universe, questions about society, um, questions about themselves, they don't get clear answers. But they do have various encounters with people in the book um, that ultimately satisfies them. Um, and in the end, there's this nice conclusion, like there's a conclusion at the end of Job, um, but the questions still remain mysterious, um, and yet they have this peace because they know that there's some sort of goodness that is at work, that it's not ultimately darkness um, that's creating this mystery, but it's actually uh, goodness. So um, the other thing that I want to just kind of mention really quick with Job is that God doesn't reject Job for asking those questions, um, and a similar thing kind of happens in, in The Man Who Was Thursday. Um, that the people are not, um, yeah, rejected for asking the questions. But in Job, God does uh, rebuke jo Job's friends um, who try to give him oversimplified answers to those questions. Um, and I think that's happening also in The Man Who Is Thursday. And I think it happens all the time in our own lives of faith. So I think that what happened to Job is what happened to Chesterton, is what happened to a lot of the people in The Man Who Is Thursday. Um, it is good for us to try to come to know the truth, um, but ultimately there's a humility that is necessary. And the humility that the characters um, have in The Man Who Is Thursday only comes at the end, after racing and running and striving and arguing and fighting, and sometimes they're fighting each other. Um, they're, they think that they have each other figured out. They think that they have, um, they all together have another character possibly figured out. Um, and they just figure out they're wrong. They don't know. They're assuming a lot. And so I think that's something that happens again, going back to the story of Jesus at Nazareth, um, that if we try to assume that we have other people all figured out, um, we're in for a rough time because we don't. Um, and so that pride that comes in can really blind us to the reality. So in The Man Who Is Thursday, um, there's a lot of sort of us versus them um, that's happening in their minds and the way that they're kind of working through things. Um, and they kind of come to find out that they're actually, as Chesterton says, all in the same boat and all seasick. Like, none of us really know what's going on in this story. And it's only then that they kind of come together as a group and say, like, what the heck is going on? Like, none of us know what's going on. Um, let's seek truth together. 
um, that they're able to humbly submit themselves to this space where they can actually encounter um, a person that will kind of reveal more of the truth to them. So I think that Chesterton and Lewis um, both are great um, exemplars, I guess, of this idea that we need each other in order to um, come to a knowledge of the truth, to come to a knowledge of God. Um, that people even who have very different philosophies than we do, people who maybe are very far from the truth of Jesus Christ, for example, um, still have something to offer. And that even though I, praise God, have been given the gift of the gospel, um, and I do know the truth on some level because of God's revelation to his church, um, that I still personally don't know deeply the full picture of it. Um, that there's still a lot that I can learn from other people. And so I, I think it's really beautiful, these groups like the Inklings with Lewis um, and Chesterton and all of his various friends and interlocutors and people that he's arguing with, like Shaw and Wells and all these guys, that they, even though their philosophies are so different, um, they sharpen each other's minds and they sharpen each other's understanding of reality. And the only reason that they can do that is because they respect each other enough as mysterious beautiful, uh, ungraspable, I guess, um, people, mysteries that God has created, um, that they can actually be humble enough to listen um, and to actually receive and to know more deeply. So um, I think that that's just a great lesson for us, especially in today's world where we live in cancel culture. Um, it's very easy to assume a lot of things about people and put them in boxes. Um, and I think that we are just as susceptible as religious people to that as non-religious people are um, because even though we believe something very different, we don't believe um, you know, in writing, we don't believe in cancel culture, at the same time, I think we breathe it in. It's all around us. And it's so easy for us to fall into that trap of just like writing people off. Like, oh, you believe this, so you're this way. Um, and I think Chesterton and Lewis didn't do that. Um, and I think they're great examples for us um, to kind of follow. So um, just to conclude, uh, both Chesterton and Lewis are obviously champions of logical faith, um, which they defended proudly in many of their works of nonfiction, but they both insisted on telling stories um, which incarnate the truth, um, and they both insisted on encountering people and their own stories, the stories of their lives, um, in order to truly preach the gospel and encounter ultimately the person of God. As you, as you know, I wasn't here for your panel discussion because I'm kind of a wimp. Will you be there for our duel, though? I, told, I mentioned what you said on our podcast about if people read Chesterton, do they really need to read Lewis anymore? Yeah. So are we going to meet outside or how are we going to do this? <laughs> I'm a little scared of a, the, the ball on the cross kind of situation starting <laughs> to happen, but we'll see. Well, I'll be looking forward to, to watching the recording of your of your presentation. I, we're so grateful to have you here. I mean, the, the purpose of having yours this early in the morning, because we didn't think anybody would come to it at all. Uh, uh, but that's what you hope for.
Well, let's let's thank the panel once again. It's just terrific. <laughs>